You're listening to Four at the Back with Joe, Maz, Neil and Pete, where we look back on some of our favourite football sides from the Premier League era. Each week we'll be digging into the archives to look at some of the most memorable teams in both English and world football. We'll have the greats, the overachievers, the heroic near misses and the catastrophic failures to have graced the game over the last 30 years. So what are you waiting for? Turn your collar up like King Eric, grab your replica Mitre Ultimax, relive your youth and let's go with Four at the Back. Greetings. Hopefully you enjoyed our bonus episode that dropped on Sunday the 7th, where three of us took a look at our favourite 4-4-2s of the Premier League era. But we're back up to a full complement this time at Four at the Back, and it's a good job because this time we're going to be doing something a bit different, and we really didn't want Joe to miss out on this one. So far, we've either looked at great sides, or occasionally something that you might think of as more of a glorious failure. But every so often, some of the most memorable sides in Premier League history have been notable precisely because they were such a mess. And that's what we're going to be doing this time. We'll be looking at Newcastle from the time that Mike Ashley took them over until their first relegation from the Premier League in 2009. Now, I'm going to start us off with a couple of anecdotes that I think are quite revealing. In, in 1996, Newcastle were, I think it's fair to say, almost everyone's second team. Unless you supported Man United or Sunderland, the odds are that you wanted the team to win the league that year. Speaking personally... I knew people who weren't really into football who walked around with that famous beer mat Newcastle United shirt with names like Ginola or Espria proudly added to the back. But fast forward to 2009 and I was sat at Villa Park on that May in the day they got relegated with barely anything, no space at all hardly between me and the thousands of fans in the Newcastle away end. Now, that game has gone down very badly with Newcastle fans ever since. But the thing that struck me most was not the Newcastle fans themselves, but who was around me. Because just in my row were fans of Man United and Arsenal, Liverpool, Cardiff, Portsmouth, Everton, and predictably enough, Sunderland. And I can tell you now that none of them were there to see the great escape, to see if Newcastle could survive. They were there to see the end of one of the most ludicrous two-year spells in um, Premier League history and I guess to see what we thought was the end of the Ashley era go down in the only way that it could have done the way that it had been for most of the previous season which was in laughter now I bring those two stories up not just to be cruel but because there's a huge gap in those 13 years going from the nation's unofficial favourite team to one so unpopular that people flocked to see them suffer for the lack of a better word you know you went to a neutral ground to watch this happen it also sets us well up quite well to start because obviously that transition doesn't happen overnight. You can't go from one point to the other quite in one move. So it's not all down to Mike Ashley and his takeover. And in fact, some of that probably means that Newcastle was a fertile ground for the Ashley takeover in the first place. So to get us underway, what is it that had happened in between 1996 and 2009? And is it fair to say that whatever popularity Newcastle had after they blew the title in 96, 
that that's all gone really as early as the sacking of Bobby Robson in 2004, where we last spoke about this Newcastle team. I think, to be fair, most of the damage that was done would have been after, well, just before Robson uh, was removed as manager. Um, I, th- I think the years you know, between Keegan's glorious failure and and uh, Robson were, you know, they were just the goings on of a football club sort of coming to terms with being in an elevated position they'd not really dealt with before. This was a bit different. There was, there was, there was something very unsavoury about the way that Robson was removed. There was, it always seemed like there was a cancer spreading through the club. Um, there were some bad eggs that have been brought in, sort of personnel-wise, both on the playing staff front and perhaps behind the scenes as well. Um, it obviously erupted in that sort of really, well, infamous incident um, against Villa of all of all teams, um, where Lee Bowyer and uh, Kieran Dyer had a fight on the pitch. Um, you know, Graham Souness was sort of brought in supposedly to bring a bit of discipline to the team, but he, you know, there were players who didn't agree with his methods and moved on. Glenn Roder was probably never really the man to 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 take the club forward. And I think by the time you get to sort of 2006, 2007, there's, you know, Newcastle want change. Newcastle fans want change. They're also seeing other clubs around them, such as Chelsea, who have new investments and are making it count. And you know the the owners at the time are quite clear that they they can't they can't match that. So I think that there's there's an element of the the, the club's owners have sort of sort of taken it as far as they can. They've not had you know, a, a, an unblemished track record either. Uh, that there have been incidents where I, uh, Freddie Shepherd and Douglas Hall, who was Sir John Hall's son, were caught sort of basically mocking uh, women from Newcastle and mocking the fans and that kind of thing. And I think they were removed from the board and then within a, within a year they were back on it. It was all a bit, it was all a bit weird. Um but I think there's an appetite for change at Newcastle come 2007. Um, the other thing that is worth pointing out at this stage is um, Mike Ashley's got beef with Dave Whelan. And um, Mike Ashley sort of semi-famously uh, was a whistleblower on rivals in the, the sportswear industry at the turn of the century, where basically um, sports retailers were were found to have colluded on the price of fixing the price of football shirts, which if you're a Newcastle or a Rangers fan is ironic beyond measure. Um, and Ashley blew the whistle on it and there was a big meeting involving sort of the, the, the founders or the, the chief executives of, of these sort of sports uh, retailers. Dave Whelan, who is the founder of JJB Sports, apparently told Ashley, there's a club in the North Sun and you're not part of it. So seven years later, Ashley's bought a big club in the north, and you can't help thinking that had something to do with it as well. Because it came out of nowhere. <laughs> Just to, uh, you about mentioned the, the game against the Villa where Newcastle ended up with eight men. 
Um, Taylor, Boyer, and Kieran Dyer all sent off. And as you say, Boyer and Dyer sent off for fist fighting. It was really, this is the 2004-05 season. And it, it was really quite eventful games against Villa because the last game of the Bobby Robson era was the leg, not the leg, but you know the, the Villa Park fixture of those two. Uh, Newcastle had finished fifth the previous year and then opened this campaign up with uh, throwing away two uh, wins against Middlesbrough and Norwich, a loss to Spurs, and then this was their fourth game without a win. And Villa beat them 4-2, and that was it. Four games into the season, having the record that Robson had had for several years, they decided to make the change. And they went for Graham Souness, which I suppose might help to lay some of the ground of what we're talking about here as to why Newcastle maybe were not the popular, most popular side for this next few years. So what do you remember about the time that, that Souness came in? Uh, I remember being pretty, pretty upset about it. I mean, you, you replace, um, you replace Bobby Robson, who by this point is, I don't think it's, it's a stretch to say he's, he's a club, he's a club legend. Um, soon as not everyone's cup of tea obviously had sort of had pedigree as a player but never really proven it as a manager um and then early i, I think the sort of early days of of, of management and this, this will become a sort of recurring theme i think with with newcastle managers at this time but he clashed massively with a lot of the um the star players in particular craig bellamy who uh, despite being sort of a key player ended up being sent off to Celtic in, in January because Souness couldn't really cope with him. Um, Shearer got injured around that time as well. Um, but, but a man was brought in to kind of instill some discipline and couldn't. Just Bellamy, Bowie, Dyer running riot and he, he couldn't handle it. Um yeah, I mean, I had the, but I think the biggest problem with uh, with Souness was he didn't really he didn't arrest the slide. I mean, Robson Robson's Newcastle had a, had a, a habit of starting slowly. The previous season we started just as slowly, and then we sort of rallied to finish fifth. And um, I think that the the biggest problem for the board was that we'd missed out on Champions League football by only finishing fifth. Well, this season we finished fourteenth. Um, we did qualify for Europe, but it was the Intertoto Cup. I always so... had a sense. <laughs> I always had a sense that the the Robson thing was as much about Shepherd and Hall wanting to make a point that they were in charge of the club and not Robson, as it was about the results. You know, I think Robson's kind of living saint um, reputation on Tyneside was something that didn't sit massively well with Shepard in particular. And, you know, I, I always felt that, although obviously, you know, Robson was, um, you know, one of the older managers in the league, uh, he'd obviously had such good results in the seasons prior that that his removal did feel very sudden and it felt politically motivated. And, you know, you're essentially bringing in his complete opposite, right? If you, you bring in Sunas, who you know, is the polar opposite of Bobby Robson. And although he'd, he'd re- rehabilitated his managerial reputation at Blackburn, I mean, we, we, we mm. shouldn't forget that, no. that, that Souness has had a good couple of years at Blackburn, 
Um, and after the Liverpool thing had gone wrong, he'd kind of, you know, he'd resurrected himself a little bit. But, you know, he had basically the same problem that he has at Liverpool, he had at Newcastle. Because at Liverpool, he either had players that he'd played with himself who, you know, he had to make some hard decisions about because they were at the end of their careers. Or he had kind of new younger players that he couldn't really relate to. And I think Blackburn worked for him because he, he went there and found a bunch of workmanlike pros. And they got on board with him um, and he went to Newcastle. And of course, you know, people like Kieran Dyer and Graham Souness is going to be a, a, a kind of disaster in waiting. And, you know, that, that's, that's kind of how it played out. But I think, you know, the dysfunction at board level is already there. I think, as you mentioned, Joe, with the, you know, the, um, the Douglas Hall and Freddie Shepard tapes, that's already there. And mm. there was a sense of that even when Keegan was there that, you know, Keegan didn't always have the easiest relationship with that board. Um, in fact, didn't Keegan threaten to walk out when they were in Division 2 um, before they got promoted the first time? I'm almost sure he did. Um, Sounds about so, right. Yeah. So, so, like, there's there's been this kind of uneasy thing where, you know, so John Hall's the, the old-fashioned owner. We talked about owners um, a little while back in reference to, you know, these people like Doug Ellis and Ken Bates that kind of were the, you know, the old fashioned, slightly musty football owners from from back in the day, these kind of dinosaur figures. And John Hall was one of those. And and he pretty much left Freddie Shepard to to do most of the money stuff and most of the sort of day to day stuff. And Shepard had a, a fairly nasty reputation in the game for a long time even before those tapes so it's something that that you know it's not as easy as to say Mike Ashley took over and everything went pear-shaped it was like things no, were pretty pear-shaped before before Ashley came along and it's one of those weird things that we'll talk about that at the very beginning people thought Ashley coming in might end up being a good thing because a lot of the stuff about zero hours contracts and the dreadful stuff that he'd done at Sports Direct hadn't really come out in the public eye by that point no, I think it, it was it was relatively early in his sort of in his tycoon career. I suppose I think he was forty three at the time, so a pretty young, successful bloke. Um, and as you say, a lot of these these controversies that have, have since come out um, hadn't come to light. Um, and the other thing that I, I will say about uh, Mike Ashley is I don't think he's a stupid man. He's not at all like you. You don't. He's he's been involved in pretty much, you know, all these different um, these deals on on the high street, and the high street is 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 a failing uh, area, and he's well aware of that. And I actually I remember watching a, an interview with him. He was in front of the like the MP Select Committee or something about something completely unrelated to Newcastle United, um, and he came across very well. Like he he knows his stuff. He's you know, he's he does come across as a bit sort of common things like that. But he's clearly he's, he's not a stupid man. He's a very intelligent man, um, but found himself well out of his depth um, in English football. Ironically, now he's probably one of the most experienced chairmen in uh, or uh, club owners in the Premier League. Um, but the, the damage is is well done at this point. But yeah, as you say, the the Ashley is not. Single is not single-handedly responsible for Newcastle United's decline. The slide started many years before, and as you say, I mean there have always been disputes between owners and managers. Um, Keegan's had a couple, and ultimately, 
he left he left because of one. Um, I don't think he was that happy with the, the sale of Andy Cole. He definitely wasn't happy with the sale of Les Ferdinand. That was a board decision, um, as we've spoken about in the past. So, yeah, there had always been a slightly um, tempestuous relationship between board and manager. That's nothing new. Um, but I think in the last couple of years before the Ashley takeover, there was a there was a definite direction the club was moving in and it wasn't forward and that was the biggest problem is it worth thinking about recruitment in that period for a moment just because some of the players you bought in went on to uh possibly unfairly because you never know with transfers whether or not someone's going to pay off and a lot of these players had big reputations coming in but i think it's fair to say in hindsight a lot of these moves didn't didn't work out and in a, a, a great kind of textbook case of that is the very first window after Bobby Robson leaves the statement signing was John Allen Boomsong from Rangers oh god <laughs> <laughs> I mean Boomsong came with a, a pretty good reputation because I think he played for Rangers did he play for Juve prior to that I, I don't know if I've got that right, but he came with a, with a reasonable reputation, but he was terrible. We also, I mean, you know, you, you pair him with Titus Bramble as well. It's not the, uh, it, it's not the sort of the, the, the tightest defence in the world. I think the bigger problem was... That sorry, he, sorry, Joe, just to, just to jump in that you've actually got it the wrong way around. He moves to Juve after playing for Newcastle. Oh, right. Only ways up. He liked well, the black and white. Well, he obviously did a much better job than uh, than we thought he did. Uh, no, no, he, he, he was, was a really hot youngster. You know, he did have a really good reputation as a youngster. So, you know, quite what went wrong, I don't know. But, yeah, he, he, was, he was touted to be a next big thing in the French defence. It was the, think... the Juve that had just been relegated for corruption, by the way, not the... So he was playing in Serie B. Yeah, it was the Calciopoli era. I think the bigger problem for us is as fans is you look at the players who went out particularly under Sunes um you know Craig Bellamy as we said um went on loan to Celtic and then was sold to Blackburn um Jermaine Genus ends up at Spurs um which you know he had a good career at Spurs and we, we got seven million quid for him but it didn't as from the Newcastle fans point of view it seemed like a bit of a like a downward step Particularly, um, particularly as you know, I mean that's the period of time when Spurs are very much on the up, and mm-hmm. the fact that we take, you know, the fact that we take Genus, you know, around that same time we take Carrick um, off West Ham, um, and it just seems like teams that we would have been, you know, uh, rubbing shoulders with in the mid table, we're kind of now, we're now kind of nicking their players the way that United mm-hmm. used to nick our players <laughs> so it kind of did feel the genus signing did feel quite significant in terms of like a power shift as well Lauren Robert ends up going on loan to Portsmouth and I think we end up selling him there at the, um, at the end of that season as well so we you've got sort of big chunks of that team we spoke about um uh last season who you know Robert hadn't hadn't performed that previous season to be to be completely fair but there was no kind of rehabilitation they just sort of off you go. We've got Albert Luque. Does anyone remember him? Do you know, now you've said I, it, I suddenly... I remember <laughs> the name. <laughs> he, was, he was terrible. So, 
I mean, he was brought in. We've brought in quite a few players that um, that summer of two thousand and five. You know, and and they look like you're thinking back. They look look some good players. We bring back Solano um, from from Villa, which sounds like a bit of a populist move. Michael Owen comes in for seventeen million quid, and I guess we'll we'll go on to speak a little bit more about him shortly. Uh, Lee Clark comes back from Fulham on a free. Um, we signed Emre from Inter. He, and I remember him being a bloody good player. Uh, Scott Parker comes from Chelsea. So y- you couldn't say that we were we were signing truly terrible players. But I don't remember any of those players really performing to the standard that the, the ones they were replacing performed to previously. Um yeah, they, they were signings that I could get on board with at the time, but none of them really sort of performed. They didn't really seem to be fitting into any kind of system. They were just players. And there did seem for a while to be the sense that we were just signing, we were signing players for the sake of them, just to make up the numbers without going, you know, we've got a particular identity in mind. Whereas if you look back at teams, you know, Keegan, even Shulett to an extent, Robson, there always seemed to be a particular style in mind. And, you know, Keegan's was, we're just going to score loads of goals and not really defend. Uh, Robson wanted to play sort of attractive, attractive football. Um, and it, it came out as such. I don't know what Sunes was trying to do. Well, fast forward to the winter of the, the following season after he's come in and I think there's around over the Christmas and New Year period they go on a run of about five or six games without without a win for one thing. But I think there's only one game in that run that they actually score in, and the final straw is they get battered by Man City three nil away. And you sort of think three nil Man City away that's not that bad a result, but it's worth remembering this is pre money Man City. This was a struggling at the bottom half perennially. Manchester City. Darius Vassell was up front for them and he was never quite the same after Euro 2004, to be honest with you, never mind after he left Villa and had that bad injury. So I suppose it's almost inevitable when the axe falls. The Sunes thing didn't work out the way they wanted to. And then they replace him with Glenn Rhoda. Now, this is a really interesting one because I think at the time, especially the way Rhoda's thing had, had gone at West Ham that had a lot of people scratching their heads yeah he didn't he didn't feel like a particularly progressive appointment um, did, uh, did Glenn Rhoda um, yeah there's, there's, there's a lot going on though isn't there I mean there's um, Owen gets injured um, which I think is you know, when Owen gets injured, that kind of coincides with the dip in form. Um, I think Rhoda was really only appointed, he was appointed as a as a caretaker manager. He was on the staff at the time. Uh, he was our youth academy director at the time. Um, and he was put in charge as caretaker manager. But I think we all felt it was just going to be, um, um, it was just going to be, it, it was going to be appointed as a, on a permanent basis, particularly when he, we did start to win a few games. We were linked with Allardyce at the time, which I think at, the, at that point would probably have been quite a popular move because he was he was a, a successful manager at the time. He was doing very well with Bolton. Um, Bolton were actually, you know, they, they were above us in the league at the time. Um, and I'm guessing that's why Allardyce decided not to come. 
but yeah, it was it, it was a difficult time. It, it never felt like a like a comfortable pair of shoes, so to speak. I mean, he's a, he's a solid pro, Glenn Rose, wasn't he? As a footballer and as a manager, um, it, it's one of those things where you know it felt like um, you, you know a championship club um, was the kind of natural fit for Glenn Rose. Um, and maybe a kind of team with top five ambitions in the Premier League that wasn't that wasn't really him. It was kind of solid but non spectacular, and, and maybe that did kind of speak to uh, the fact that, that that maybe there was change coming at boardroom level. I think the other thing um, with Glenn Roder is that he'd not been a massively successful manager. He got West Ham relegated. Um, his his most recent role before that was relegated. Obviously, he was ill. Um, towards the very end of, of that run um, but he wasn't seen as somebody who could take the club forward because you know he'd really struggled with West Ham he, he seemed out of his depth in the Premier League and that was a West Ham side that everyone had famously said was too good to go down of course oh famous yeah they, this was a team that had it was Di Canio, Trevor Sinclair Freddie Canute Joe Cole was in that team uh, and yeah, they they, uh, they they went down, and then I think he was sacked. He, he lasted. He went through preseason with them, and was sacked in August. Um, so they obviously didn't think he was the man to take them take them out of the championship. So I, quite quite what he'd done in the the intervening two years to, to to get another chance in the Premier League was was a bit of a strange one. Do we need to think about? the Michael Owen signing a bit more because that's that was obviously the big statement signing of the following year much more much more of an impact than the boom song signing but it always struck me as a buying someone because they're available rather than because they fit because the one thing that had never really worked was playing Shearer and Owen up front together it always it always made Shearer a worse player than playing with some of the other people that he was up front for with England. And Owen always looked better with Heskey than he did with Shearer. So, uh, and Shearer's goals dry up until Owen gets hurt in this season. So you wonder, does all, yeah, I, th- I think he does all right. I, I, I think Owen and Owen Shearer do all right. Um, Owen does uh, all right, but Shearer's goals just dry up completely. Yeah, I mean, you've you've you also got to remember this. This was Shearer's last season. Like he's not he's not the Alan Shearer that. Uh, of, of even two or three years ago, he's he, he can barely run. So I, I think that part of the reason was that obviously they they played together. So there, there was some, I think there was some sense to it in the sense that they had played together. They'd had a reasonable partnership playing for England. Um, the big problem was is that Owen wasn't really in a position to do all that running either. Um, he's not. He's not the player he was when he played with Shearer either. Uh, Real Madrid don't want to keep him. He wants to go back to Liverpool. And there's, uh, you know, anecdotal suggestions that <clears throat> he wanted to go to Liverpool. He was waiting for Liverpool to make an offer. Liverpool decided not to. Um, or they, they weren't prepared to um, to pay the money. So he ended up at Newcastle. I think it was, I mean, you know, my memory of the signing um, is that it was a, a prestige thing. You know, it's yeah. Newcastle trying to make a splash after 
you know, a down season or two. They they wanted a marquee player. And, and you know, even though he was injury prone by this time, Owen's form with England was very, very good. You know, right up until, um, I mean, right up until sort of 2008, 2000. Nine, I think he finally finished playing with England, and 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 he was actually still scoring goals for England. But for whatever reason, he he just couldn't put a run of games together um, in the league, either in La Liga with Real Madrid or with or, or with Newcastle. And of course, um, he subsequently come out and said, and whether this is autobiograph autobiography sensationalism or not, because you can never really trust these ghosted footballer autobiographies, you know, because they need some some pull quotes to sell don't they so whether he really you know meant what he said about wanting to sit on the bench um i couldn't i couldn't really say and of course shearer and him had a little falling out in the media over it didn't they um but it it was sort of i guess a demonstration of 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 the sort of way things were going wrong that you had this how much did they pay from 16 million or something yeah, 17 million uh, quid 17 million quid pound striker uh always injured sat on the bench not looking happy when he was playing he wasn't playing particularly well Shearer felt like he had too much power in the club anyway um and the whole thing just started to feel like a you know a boulder rolling down the hill I think when you spend that much money and it doesn't come off it it it, it stings a bit and you, you know I, I can remember you know I, th- I think of the sort of the Spurs example of Soldado, where you, you, you brought in a, a big money striker and he, he's just not quite done the business for you. Um, Owen, I mean, it, it's, it's difficult because when you look at his scoring record and his the rates he scored at, he, he, he did, you know, he certainly started well. But the problem for us is that he never seemed to come up when it counted. Um he he'd often score goals in games we we'd already won. Um, he was often out injured at crucial points of the season, and I suppose you could argue that it was his absences that cost us league games. But at the same time, when he when he was playing, he didn't seem to have the effect that you would expect from a marquee signing like that. And you know, seventeen million quid at this point is a huge amount of money, and it's symbolic that he's. They've spent the money on him to surpass the Alan Shearer record signing. I know it's you know eleven years on or whatever it was, but it's still you know we didn't break it again until we we brought in uh, Miguel Almiron a couple of years ago. So Newcastle don't tend to spend massive bit sums of money certainly at this point unless it's a player they they think is they can they can really build the club around. And Owen really fast to see, and I think his his attitude as the years wore on was, you know, it, it just didn't it just didn't resonate with the Newcastle fans at all. I think the other part of the problem is that they bought him, and that kind of money is, or at least was back then, money that you spend to build a club around somebody, and mm. then they and then they just didn't is is the truth no. of it. Um, so he was put in a side that that didn't really suit him, and I suppose the thing early on when I could say that Shearer's goals dried up and Owens didn't, and that was when he did score quite important goals goals for Newcastle. The only time really was that first run. 
it, whenever they played together, it tended to be Owen that came off, off looking bad. It was Shearer's game that went a little bit quiet. And I suppose what you can put that down to is that Owen is younger, fresher, has more left in his legs and all those kind of things. Shearer is closer to retirement at this point. Um, but what happens when Owen does get hurt is that you start to see all sorts of... Uh, Unsup- un- people that you didn't expect come to the fore and take the take the weight. Like Shola Amiobi probably plays the best football of his career coming through and doing a lot of Shearer's running for him, let's be honest. Uh, then it, it, Solano has a bit of a renaissance on the wing. Charles Zogbia comes through. Uh, he don't have been a very cheap buy from the French league and starts to chip in with the odd goal here and there. There's probably one or two other players whose names I'm forgetting off the top of my head, but taking that man out meant the the whole structure looked a little bit better under Rhoda uh, because he couldn't pick Michael Owen. And so what happened was you went from one of the last wins under Sooner. So you said a minute ago, you didn't know what he was trying to do. One of their last wins was kicking lumps out of Arsenal to beat them 1-0. Uh, one of the many games in that period that probably drove Maz absolutely wild. And then they went from that to actually playing a much more pace and power dominated thing with lots of wing play. Uh, as I say, from Solano and Inzogbia and, and and one or two of these other players that were probably less high profile than Michael Owen, but ultimately ended up giving more on the pitch. Yeah, I, th- I think that sort of, it, it was a return to what we knew as a, as a club. Like you, we sort of built an identity on, on sort of attacking wing play in particular. And, you know, um, and Zogbia is probably the, the least heralded of our French left wingers over the last 25 years or so. Um, you know, he was he was he was decent, and I think he probably did his best work at Villa or Wigan. Um, but yeah, as you say, he chipped in. Solano chipped in with um, with six that season as well. Um, but all the while, it was frustrating that all this was going on while the likes of Laurent Robert was on loan at Portsmouth. Um, I, I think we we just kind of we almost wanted to go back in time a little bit. That was the biggest problem. And that's um, natural, isn't it? Because yeah. you know you, you you've had this period of unheralded success, not unheralded, uh, sort of you know unimaginable success, really, when you consider where Newcastle were in the late eighties um, and early nineties, and suddenly it's like you know promotion, first season of the Premier League, um, a top five finish, going for the title against Man United, you know, um, finishing second under Kenny Dalglish, uh, cup finals under Ruud Hullet. And and you know even yeah so even managers that like Dalglish and Hullet that aren't fondly remembered you know had done things you know and then Bobby Robson Champions League um, you know Aspria hat trick against Barcelona like, all these sorts of things that 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 had, that had become I guess part of uh, of the identity of a whole generation of fans growing up and you'd have been in that age bracket yourself um, and then suddenly it's like grinding out grinding out one nils under Graham Souness and you know and sort of like having to read in the paper that Michael Owen has got a hamstring twinge he could have played but he didn't fancy it you know and all these sorts of Mm. unsavory rumors started to filter out that Owen wasn't as injured as he was saying he was and just these little niggles and you know whispers that him and Shearer didn't get on and 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 sort of it just started to feel like you know as teams like Spurs and Villa are, are kind of on the rise you know, Newcastle are sort of, if you know, on the way down. And it's always difficult when that happens. And, you know, any team that's not Man United, Arsenal or Chelsea 
go through these periods where they rise up to challenge and then they kind of start dipping back down. Um, and unfortunately, that's difficult for fans to take. Yeah, absolutely. It's that, it's that, that sensation of, you know, we're on the way down. Um, and all, all of these signings, all these signings almost without sort of any kind of identity in mind. They just, it just feels like with hindsight, we were chasing what we'd lost. Um, we kept bringing back players who had been successful for us in the past. Like I'm just sort of going through some of the signings we made over, over that sort of period. Like players like Robbie Elliott came back, Lee Clark, Pavel Cernicek, um came back to be a backup goalkeeper. Um, you know, we, we, we keep re-signing I, I, you know, perhaps in the hope that we'll recapture some of that magic. Um, it's just, yeah, there's there's no real strategy to it. So again, we get to 2007 and we, we want some direction. And you think that you, a new man coming in is going to give you that direction, whether it's Sam Allardyce, who's, who's got a point to prove to Bolton, or Mike Ashley, who clearly hasn't bought this club for no reason whatsoever. We want to see change. We want to see some sort of strategy to what we're doing. And ultimately, we want to go back towards the top end of the league. That's all we wanted. Well, you've moved us on there to Sam Allardyce, and I suppose uh, that's as good a, a time to move us on as well, as well because the Glenn Roder experiment paid off quite well for six months in what was one of the weaker seasons that I can remember. Uh, there was a fairly big drop-off from the top five to everybody else in that 05-06 season, if I remember right. So Newcastle were able to win a few games, eat up a lot of ground, and end up with a very respectable seventh-place finish. But inevitably, the next year, things didn't go quite so well, and they fell back down to the kind of mid-table mediocrity that we'd sort of already become quite used to from this side and so the decision was made to replace him with uh well briefly with Nigel Pearson which was quite an interesting little uh window but then Sam Allardyce took over at the end of that season and it was obviously we spoke about Sam Allardyce not that long ago which is why we've paired these two episodes up but it's fair to say it wasn't greeted with wholehearted enthusiasm by the Newcastle fans, despite what he'd achieved at Bolton. I think, as we discussed last time out, the his methods at Bolton were sort of... People missed the point, didn't they? They just saw Allardyce as he was a purveyor of long ball football. He was a, he was a direct football man. Nobody really saw what he was what he was actually doing in terms of sort of almost there was, he was taking a more scientific approach to the game. Um, and he'd obviously refined that approach over what, something like an eight or nine year reign at Bolton. Um, Cause he didn't, he didn't come in with, with that necessarily. It was, it was an evolution in his style. So by the time he comes to Newcastle, he's got a very clear idea of what he wants to do and how he wants to do it. And unfortunately, he's not able to sell that particularly well to his squad. Uh, he makes a huge amount of changes in a very short space of time. Um, he alienates a lot of key players. He moves on a lot of key players. Um, 
he brings in players which you know you could kind of see were like a, a sort of a similar kind of um, approach to ilk. Yes, <laughs> excellent word um, to what he'd been doing at Bolton. But I mean, I'm just looking at the transfers in. There's sort of you know, there's 15 or 16 signings that we make that summer. Um, most of them reasonably forgettable. Um, notably Joey Barton, who um, I'm guessing he thinks could be his sort of Kevin Nolan sort of. Well, that uh, was, sorry, just to, just to jump in, that was part of the, what I thought of at the time is the centre midfield merry-go-round that went on because there was a bit of a trio yes. of swaps where Scott Parker moved from Newcastle to West Ham. Nigel Rio Coca was then let go to Villa from, from West Ham and then Newcastle brought in Joey Barton to uh, replace Parker at Newcastle. And I don't know, maybe Gavin McCann ended up going to, to Man City to replace Joey Barton, <laughs> but that that feels like a step too far somehow. But yeah, there was this whole sequence of, of things going around. And I don't know, I never got the sense that no matter what talent Joey Barton has in his feet, and I think that gets underappreciated sometimes because of his personality, mm. I don't think swapping Parker for him was a bit of an upgrade, really. No, but I don't think... I, Parker was definitely on the on the up, and I think West Ham were seen as a team sort of on the up. And he was a Londoner, time. you know. Yeah, I mean, him and, him and Pardew, they just vibes, didn't they, really? Yeah. Um, and it obviously led to Parker going to Spurs down the line and having a, a very good career for us as well. But Parker was, a, I think, a footballer generally who actually he played his better football as he got older, you know, like mm. he was a wonder kid, you know, when he was at Charlton as a boy and he was on the McDonald's advert, he was the, you know, he was the next big thing in British football and the Chelsea move kind of derailed him for a bit. And, you know, he ended up playing his best football kind of in his late twenties, uh, early thirties. But I think, I mean, the the thing about Allardyce and the signings and everything else was, I mean, we, we kind of missed out a step in a way in that Allardyce wasn't, the choice of the new owner um, which is an interesting dynamic in itself so Freddie Shepard appointed him and a couple of weeks later uh, had had to hand over the keys to Mike Ashley and it's almost I mean it almost seems in hindsight as if Shepard was putting his choice of manager in to spy Ashley and that the Ashley Allardyce relationship was always from that point likely to be a little bit tricky I th- I th- it's, it's difficult because I don't think I, I don't think Mike Ashley would have had a preferred choice because he didn't know what he was doing. I think his approach was well, we'll just kind of see how <laughs> it goes. But I, I can't imagine that that Mike Ashley turns up and goes right. I've got an idea of who I want and exactly what kind of man I want. Whereas you know some owners have got very clear whether it's just like they, they're trying to sort of sell their ideas to the fans that kind of thing actually I don't think had any of that no but uh, I think the people that he had around him did right quite possibly yeah. so like Derek Lambias and uh I mean he gets involved with Dennis Wise after a bit as well doesn't he like they probably did have ideas and they would have been different ideas to Mike you know, sorry to uh, to Sam Allardyce's and I think probably although Ashley didn't know what he was doing, like any businessman. And funny enough, this is what Sugar did at Spurs as well when he first came into Spurs. He doesn't know football very well, so he tries to surround himself with 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 some people that do. Um, and 
necessarily there then is some conflict with the man on the bench because as the football manager moves away from the Ferguson Clough you know CEO of the whole organization into being just about the team and that's a transition that's starting to take place around this point you get this tension between what the manager wants and what the people paying the money want and I definitely felt like there was a lot of that going on between Allardyce and the board during Allardyce's kind of ill-fated spell at Newcastle. I think that I think that, that may have played a part. I think the bigger problem was that Allardyce. I think Allardyce went in with this idea that everybody would think he'd be a great appointment and everybody would just buy into his idea because he it worked well at Bolton and they would just get on and do it. And it was so far removed from what anybody at Newcastle had been doing for the last decade, you know, be it under Rhoda, uh, be it under Sooness or Robson, that he, I think he completely underestimated how long it would take, and he just tried to change too much too soon. He also, he brings in 16 players. He gets rid of over 20, if you include sort of loans and things like that. He sells our entire first-choice midfield to West Ham, um, in so so Kieran Dyer, Solano, and uh, Scott Parker all go to West Ham um, that summer. Um, he's moved on a lot of experience as well, so he, he's almost. I think I think he created it. He created a rod for his own back massively, and I think you know I, I agree with you. I, there was always going to be some tension between you know the the incumbent manager although we don't just i think he'd been there three weeks before freddie shepherd sells his shares to mike ashley um so there's always going to be that little bit of tension between sort of the incumbent manager and and the new board but i don't think allardyce worked with the board all that closely i think he was so sort of sort of hard-headed in his approach to things and when it didn't come off they weren't really left with a choice and they I mean I guess they won five out of five out of 25 Premier League games uh, after a kind of slight you know sort of fairly fairly bright opening to the era so I can see how a board might get impatient with that but at the same time you know um, uh, you know Allardyce had proven over a period of time that, that if he had you know, if he had time to make his methods work, then his methods would work. Um, and having let him clear out the first team and start to bring in his own personnel, it did feel like pulling the trigger, you know, very, very early, particularly as, you know, there didn't, there wasn't actually a lot of people available uh, to take the club on in January. And the, I think the fact that they ended up going back to Keegan just kind of shows you how out of ideas they were. And you mentioned earlier on, Joe, the the being stuck in the past, well, I mean, there's there's exhibit A, isn't it? Like the manager that almost won you the league, but it broke him. Uh, at bringing him back after a kind of failed spell with England, a kind of weird spell with Man City, um, it did it did feel like an odd decision. It was a populist yeah, move, and it was it was an absolutely. unashamed it was an unashamed populist move. We we've made plenty of them over the previous couple of years. This was the ultimate populist move, um, which I think was only superseded by the the appointment of Shearer the following season, um, as a kind of a 
a, a Hail Mary, I suppose. It's a shield for the fans, isn't it? In a yeah. way, it's it's a bit like, all right, we're unpopular. Let's <laughs> let's appoint someone the fans love, and it will it will kind of you know they'll back off us. No, it kind of it almost works to some extent. Like there were there were sort of there were signs that sort of the Keegan way was going to. Um, was going to get Newcastle out of trouble and they, they get themselves, um, they managed to sort of ensure avoidance of relegation by beating Sunderland, which is always going to help. Um, but I mean, it, it always seemed uneasy and the, 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 there was always this weird dynamic between Keegan and the board who, you know, it, it was around this time that the Cockney, Cockney Mafia became a thing. Um, Dennis Wise leaves. He was the manager at Leeds. And then suddenly he gets appointed as director of football at Newcastle based on absolutely nothing. Um, he's... I, I get the, the director of football position is about making transfers. Now, I, I would have thought if Kevin Keegan needed help with anything, it was defensive organisation. He's he, he'd never had a problem sort of picking out players to to slot into a team and, and that kind of thing. So again it was it, it was just a bit muddled. Yes, yeah, the continental structure, but then you bring in the least continental yeah. uh, uh, sort of you know football figure you can think of. By the way, quick aside on on, on Dennis Wise, um I don't know if you've seen the video uh, that when it was viral on Twitter sort of you know last summer uh, but it's basically a documentary that follows uh, Dennis Wise as manager for like the Thai under 18s uh, national team uh, on tour, like in a sort of, you know, under 21 tournament in Asia. Um, and uh, they there's a halftime team talk that they film in a dressing room and it's got subtitles and everything. And, um, and and Wise gives this like most 1980s team talk with somebody translating for him, where he basically says, uh, you let him know he's there, right? You have my permission to put him in that stand over there. You let him know. It's just this bizarre sort of like, you know, inviting his players to get sent off in injuring the opposite side star player. Um, and it's... It's absolutely brilliant. Um, but yeah, Dennis Wise is not exactly known as um, cultivated director of football material. We're paying him 20 grand a week for that insight. Brilliant. Exactly. Put him in the stand. I mean, that, but, but, this, but this is what I mean. I mean, you, I mean, we're joking about it now, but this is a man who isn't even given the Thai national team job. He has to, he's got a junior position with the Thai national team. And he was at one of the biggest football clubs in England, mm. supposedly calling the shots in the transfer market. And confessing to having only seen players on YouTube. You, 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 can, you can take the man out of the crazy gang, but you can't take the crazy gang out of the man. <laughs> no, exactly. Oh, more, more on that later. Fucking hell. Features Des Walker as well like, as his assistant, which was even funnier. Before we get to that season, because I think we haven't actually got to the really crazy year yet at all. No. There's so much of this other stuff. But I just want to cycle back around again to um, what we were saying a few minutes ago. Um, because the difference between Big Sam and the way he was received and Kevin Keegan and, and his reception, it does speak to, I think, that overarching thing of what had happened at Newcastle and why it was so difficult to do anything up there. Because 
Sam, as you say, expected to be greeted much more warmly than he was, and it didn't fit for whatever reason. Um, and Keegan is just what it did work temporarily. You know, he kept them up, and they went on that five six game streak where they didn't lose, and they hammered Spurs and put three past Reading. It kind of worked, and he may not have been the most tactically gifted manager ever. And the England job was famously, as he admitted himself, too big for him. But sometimes the combination of a person and a place just works better than it has any right to. And I think that's kind of what happened is that with Allardyce, you get this situation not unlike when Hodgson was at Liverpool. And I think he thought that the fans would have a better sense of just how bad Newcastle's position was and that he'd be treated as more of a saviour and they were still thinking of themselves as one of the five or six biggest clubs in the country when that hadn't although it's true in terms of stature but in terms of performance that hadn't been true for some years now whereas Kevin Keegan comes in and it just fits the place like a glove and so there's none of that kind of uh, antagonism and it's in many ways, this whole se- this whole next season goes crazy because that short-term fix of going back to Keegan, that man who fits an image, even though he could never get on with a board like this, when that comes apart, that's really what kickstarts the whole mess of this whole 2008-9 uh, season. Uh, it, it unravels very quickly, and it the the biggest problem with it is that is it it unravels directly after the transfer window. So there is there's no time to put it right. There's no time to try and you know to to bring in some of the the personnel that we, we we're stuck with it. We're absolutely stuck. With isn't it, it? Isn't it the Milner deal to us that is really the catalyst? For a lot so of this? there's there's two things. So the, the the first one is the Milner deal. Um, so James Milner um, is sold to Aston Villa. Uh, he had a he had a brilliant season for us. Um, he'd been great the season before, um, and then. And, and we sold him, and this is a you know a bright young British English player um, who'd come to us from Leeds and uh, was showing signs of becoming a you know a seriously good Premier League player. And as we do, we sold him to a rival. I think the bigger thing was that um, we signed Cisco, uh, who was a Spanish striker who did th- this was the most important thing he did for us. Um, and Cisco was brought in behind Keegan's back, and Keegan had, had maintained was under the impression that he would be involved in everything related to the first team squad. Uh, he would have a final say, and he didn't want Cisco, and they signed him anyway. So we left. And he could see what way the wind was blowing there as well, right? You know, I mean, if if it's if that happens with one player, that's going to start happening. Uh, with all with a, with a lot of other players, and you know, ultimately, as the manager, I mean, I understand why English managers find it so difficult to work under a continental system, you know, and even, you know, even continental managers who are used to working under that system sometimes find it intolerable. You know, that was one of the things with Pochettino at Spurs at, at, at the end was that you know he sometimes would go into conference press conferences and say, uh, "I'm not the manager, I'm the coach. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't have." final say over transfers you know and he'd make a big point over that um so so actually it is it is not surprising really given keegan's personality and his standing in the game that he found that humiliating that he, he wanted out 
Well, the other thing was that um, he he filed a lawsuit against uh, against Newcastle because they basically said that he knew what the, the structure was and that um, that he he knew he wouldn't get the um, he, he wouldn't get the final say. Um, and it turned out at the end of the season, uh, or the, sorry, early in the following season. Um, it might have been actually that year. Actually, um, he was awarded two million two million pounds because the club basically said they'd lied they lied about it and said that um, basically what they said about his departure was was not true. That actually they had promised him full control and they they'd broken their promise and that their correspondence on Keegan's departure was just PR. Which begs That's, the question, hmm. who was doing their PR at the time? Hmm. Um, well, that's a really kind of... wise <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a really good point to jump in because um, that is the moment. Up till now, we forget, Ashley had been really popular. You know, he, he's the man who got rid of the hate of Sam Allardyce, who took the flack. He was he had that image of the guy who stood with the fans traveling to the away games down in pints in his Newcastle shirt that was who Mike Ashley was in the popular imagination. And other fans were kind of laughing at the kind of ridiculousness of it. I, I think we but, were, to be honest. Well, some some were, but there was this kind of counter-narrative going on as well. as Mike Ashley's one of the lads kind of sentiment that was there at the time. That dies the minute he sacks Kevin Keegan, and the, the fallout uh, comes from there. And Yeah, the idea that he can be a man of the people is, it, 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 yeah, it dies there and then. Um, and is and the other thing is that the, the, the club is not in a in, in a great position, um, but somehow having having sort of lost Kevin Keegan, they make it worse. <laughs> I can't quite remember the timeline like exactly, but when is it that he goes on? Uh, he goes and does an interview, I think, with the BBC. Uh, about his about you know mistakes he's made so far in football, um, and he defends his record in terms of you know he was expected to spend much more money on the club than he actually ended up, and he goes and defends his record. That might actually might actually be a little bit after this, but it always stood out to me because he was positioned as a savior, but he was no Roman Abramovich, right? When it came yeah. to investment in the first team, he bought the club. But it soon became apparent, and this is Newcastle fans' frustration to this day, I suppose, that that investment was was basically to make him money. It wasn't for him to run a successful football team necessarily. It was the club was an asset. And that is always, I think, the most difficult thing for fans to take, but especially I, difficult for Newcastle fans to take. I think the, the big thing was, yeah, when, when, he, when he bought the club, he was... Yeah, he was positioned as this sort of saviour or this this facilitator of success through investment. Um, turns out he didn't do any due diligence when he bought the club. So he wasn't aware of things like um, liabilities for, pre, for past player transfers, like where you know, deals are structured over a number of years, or um, there are issues with, yeah, and maybe this is bad luck. But at the time, the club is sponsored by Northern Rock. And they go, we're, oh, yeah, and, they go and we're, about, we're about seven months away from, you know, the, 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 the biggest financial meltdown in, in decades. 
Um, so there's, there's things like that, but he's, he's completely destroyed his credibility by not doing those things. Um, and so it means that there's no money to spend. And sure, since then, Ashley's done a huge amount of work in terms of restructuring the club and making it financially viable. But that doesn't really make up for, for all these sort of failures in the, in the first couple of years. This was, these were things he should have done in the first place. Um, and to say that you didn't know that there was all this money owed um, uh, from the very start is just, it, it doesn't really it, it doesn't really make up for it. You know, I read it. I read recently in the Athletic a um, like an overview of um, of Alan Sugar's time at Spurs, and it's actually a very similar story. Um, you know, I didn't realise this, but the guy that um, that, that Sugar brought in when he realised just how bad, obviously he he took over the club at the point where it was almost um, going to go bust, and you know he realised things were so bad. He actually um, Claude from The Apprentice was the guy he brought in to uh, to clear up the club's finances, which I never knew. Um, and uh, you know, he, he Claude's basically very frankly said to Alan Sugar after he'd had like you know a month to look around the place, he said, "With you know, it's fucked." Um, you've just you know you've got to start from the ground up and they found all these weird things like each player uh got a free pint of milk every day and they were spending like thousands of pounds on milk um <laughs> like bonkers stuff like that so you know it's it's one of those things that people that are very successful in inverted commas real life business when they get into football they often find that you know it's not an equivalency like there's a lot of things that you, that are quite unique about football business, and I think probably Randy Lerner at Villa probably found out a similar thing. And you know, a lot of these owners that don't end up sticking around, or or you know, I mean, the the two idiots that took over at Liverpool for a bit, you know, like was it Gillette and Hicks? Like, you know, they they probably find, found that out as well. That running in a running a, a a sort of European sports team is not the same as running. Um, an American one so it's it, it's very it's very interesting to sort of you know think about this this idea of very successful real life businessmen that think they can run a football club successfully but it actually takes quite a lot of research and as you say Joe due diligence to, to, to do it you know to do it right and do it correctly and of course in the meantime fans who often particularly you know match going fans are not very patient reading about you know kind of accounts um, they just want results especially at a club like Newcastle or Liverpool or someone like that where you don't really you, you're just not going to get given the time to make these mistakes and 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 expect sort of goodwill from the fans like they, it's it's not yeah I, 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 I suppose the the the, um, the conversation about Newcastle fan expectations is one that we simply don't have the time to cover in this uh, um, in, in this episode. But I, I don't think it's it's too much to expect for um, a businessman, a man who claims to not only have been successful but to be you know extremely successful at it, um, to have done these things. And it's, it was a massive oversight, and he's been paying for it ever since. And I mean, to be fair to, to, to Ashley, at the end of that season, he sort of says, look, I, I, I know I've, I've messed up. I'll get, I'll get rid of the club. I'll, you want me out? That's what I'm trying to do. 
But I mean, the big problem starts... is, it's now 2021. I mean, he starts that the minute he realises how unpopular the decision to remove Keegan has made him. There's, yeah. talk, there's talk of a takeover within days of that from two or three different parties. Nothing comes of it. No one comes up with the money that he wants to, I assume, break even on the whole thing. I can't imagine Mike Ashley, someone who would ever have countenanced losing money. Um, so you end up with a situation where Chris Hutton is named as the caretaker boss uh, in early September, just uh, as you say, just after the transfer window closes. And then a month later, we get our second permanent manager of the season, um, which is a ludicrous statement if you actually spell it out like that, uh, when they appoint Joe Kinnear. And within four days of that appointment, he's gone on a X-rated tirade. I can't remember exactly what he said, but there's this full-on kind of Mike Bassett-esque interview that he gives. Uh, I can't even remember what caused it. Does anyone remember the details of it? So he called uh, Johan Kabai, Johan Kebab. No, 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 no. That's a different one. That's a different one. That's, that's when inexplicably we decided to bring him back as director of football in 2012. Um, oh, is that afterwards? Oh, yeah, I'm getting my timelines confused again. So much yeah. to talk about, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So, um, basically, he... Um, oh, God. I, I don't know how uh, how explicit we should go on this uh, <laughs> on this podcast. Um, in his first ever press conference as Newcastle manager, I think there have been some stories written about, you know, um, about his record and his style of football. And um, there was one particular... Um, uh, journalist called Simon Bird. Uh, and Joe Kinnear says, which one's Simon Bird? And Simon Bird sticks his hand up and says, me. And Joe Kinnear says, you're a cunt. To which Simon Bird says, thank you. Um, and um, there's a full transcript over here. So after that, Joe Kinnear becomes sort of affectionately known as Joe fucking Kinnear. Uh, he basically says he won't talk to any national press. He'll only speak, speak to two local papers so he's already alienated himself with the press within a week um and you know we've seen so many uh, premier league managers fall foul of the media um, it's, it's worth saying at this point as well that, that joe Kinnear hasn't worked in football for a really long time when he no he took that position so he was very successful at wimbledon he was like the last wimbledon manager that that, that sort of you know uh, had any success with them before of course they had their franchise nonsense and ends up you know uh, slipping down the leagues and everything else um but he he had heart problems and he pretty mm. much had to had to stop and so just as with Rhoda, it was a really head-scratching appointment because he was a man of who was in very ill health um and it just seemed seemed really 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 odd even before the swearing there, there was an uptick in results, it, weirdly, is the one thing that kind of happened. Because obviously, you know, the caretaker manager thing is almost always a curse. Very few people that can ever actually win a game with that designation. So Hutton had had a, a rotten run after Keegan had left. And then there was a couple of draws that just looked like they may start to turn, turn, the, um, turn the tide. But any chance that he had of winning people over and not looking like one of the Cockney Mafia, uh, then that phrase was well and truly in use by now, was when they finally happened to lose to Sunderland for the first time in 
years and years and and uh, they, that burned any goodwill they actually won the next two games including beating villa who you know were complete with james milner by this point but none of that mattered when you'd just been turned over by sunderland yeah i mean it, it it's something that not many newcastle managers properly survive i mean rude killer after rude killer he, he left alan shearer out of a, a time where derby and you can imagine how that ended um it's it's never. It's one of those things where you know you, you think you could probably get away with finishing seventeenth in the league, as long as you beat Sunderland, you're fine. If you if you don't beat Sunderland, you're in real trouble. Um, and we had a couple of managers who couldn't do that over the sort of the following couple of seasons. But um, I mean, there's other weird. I mean, there's other weird things with Joe Kinnear. He's not even actually appointed as a permanent manager until November. He's initially appointed as interim manager, which I don't see is much different from caretaker manager. Um, but you can see the writings on the wall by January, because he there's the infamous min- mispronunciation of Charles and Zogby's name, um, and. Two days later, Charles Insomnia is off. Weirdly he topical, all... that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Shout out to Paul Merson. <laughs> good old, good old uh, Sam Maximus. Sam Maximus is a, he's an absolute game changer. Um, but also Shay Given leaves. And to me, that was the biggest indication that there, was, there were real problems. Because Shay Given had been at Newcastle since 1997. Um, he'd been our first choice keeper for pretty much the entire of that time. At times during that run, I think he he'd probably been the best keeper in the league at certain points of that of that stay at Newcastle. Like he was a seriously good player. Um, and at the start of the window, he he said he didn't want to go. He was he was happy to stay at Newcastle for the time being. Something happened that month, which meant that Shea Given decided he was off to Man City. It's funny though, isn't it? Because you know, Harper is a seriously good keeper as well. And he kind of gets his chance here, doesn't he? He was and outstanding. Ends up, and, and, and ends up being a legend himself. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, he'd been there probably. I think he'd been there a lot, even longer than Given. That's the thing. He was, the, yeah, he was Given's backup that whole time. And when he got his chance to uh, to, to, to run with it, he, he was fantastic. He was Carlo Cudicini before Cudicini. He was, um, he, he was an excellent player and he was, he was there probably up until like 2012, 2013, when we'd come back to the Premier League and, and gone into Europe. He'd, he'd, he'd been the, the, the keeper then, um, up until Tim Krull um, took over. But, um, you know, I mean, and, and Harper, you know, he's a perfectly able deputy, but I think it was, a, it was symbolic that, you know, a, a player who had been there for that long, um, who was... He was synonymous with the club. He was, he was an outstanding player in his own right. And he was going. And Joe Kinnear was staying. And it was, that's when you thought we're in real trouble. A week after the transfer window shuts, Joe Kinnear is admitted to hospital um, with heart problems. And, and, that's, and that's horrible. That's, you know, that's, you, you don't wish that on anybody. Mm. But... It, but also, they appointed somebody with known heart problems. Twice, him and Sunes. Yeah. Um, 
There's and a little bit of the the Julia at Villa situation about all of this, to be honest with you. Um, there is, and it's and it's you know it, it's it, it's an unwelcome distraction, and I think in in any other season with any other club, you would say, well, that was completely unforeseen. But I don't think I think Joe Kinnear had history of it, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, that's why he left Wimbledon. Yeah. Yeah. Just to. Um, just to add, you said about the given thing a moment ago. I, I read something about this. It may have been in one of the local papers that uh, either the Manchester one or the um, or pr- probably was the Newcastle paper because why why they'd be talking about it otherwise, I don't know. But he said that that window when they were trying to re-sign him on a contract, the he left it with his agents to kind of talk about, and they came back to him and said, yeah, this isn't even an, a serious offer. And when Man City came in, who had obviously been taken over by uh, Sheikh Mansour about three months previous, the, the chance to go along to someone who clearly wanted to move up when Newcastle were content to just keep bobbing along in the Premier League, I think that's a, his quote was that bobbing along idea. That was you know, why he felt he had to move. He couldn't just stay just to finish 14th every year at best. And it's not unlike the situation with the Milner deal in a sense because Milner moved to Villa the first time as part of the Solano deal you know you came in for him on the deadline day and we wouldn't let him go without somebody to get us through the year and so you were signing the player that we wanted but you sent Milner back as part of the deal a couple of years later we go back in for Milner and that is that position has turned now. Now we're the ones taking players off you that you want, and now Man City are coming in and taking players off you that you want. So you've not only got this managerial conundrum, like we can't find someone to actually fill in the gap and be in the the board room. Uh, uh, sorry, to do do the job permanently and 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 with some stability, but you're also losing the kind of players that you need to even tread water to your nearest rivals. Yeah, I mean we. I, I think at this point, everybody can see that Newcastle is a sinking ship. Nobody really wants to be on board that ship because it's going down. I think the only person we can bring in um, is Kevin Nolan, who's a player who's been on our radar for quite some time. Um, I, I think Allardyce wanted to bring exactly. him with him. Yeah. Um, and he, he was the kind of, you know, Kevin Nolan's the kind of player you need in that sort of situation to tr- try and fire everybody up and, and drag a few people across the line, and we needed more of that. Um, I think he's the he's about the only player we're able to bring in um, during um, during that sort of relegation season. Um, but again, I mean, the writing's on writing's been on the wall for a while. They put um, Hewton back in charge for for a couple of months, and it. it this time, Colin Calderwood's assigned to kind of help him out, but we still we're dropping down the league. We can't pick up any wins, um, so <laughs> we get our second interim manager of the season on the first of April, um, and Alan Shearer is is, um, is appointed as as interim manager. Dennis White leaves at this point. Um, which is is interesting, I guess, because at this point you can't sign anyone anyway, and, and you can't afford to pay him after the end of the season. So, uh, so he's off. Is um, it worth just adding a quick note that when Kinnear goes into hospital, it's the day that they win their penultimate game 
in the league and I think their league position was about 13th and I think it's the West Brom game it's the same day that he goes into hospital and then it's well I'm just looking over the results after that draw defeat defeat draw with Hull defeat at Arsenal defeat at Chelsea draw away at Stoke defeat at Spurs yeah this is the kind of run that you go on it's it, there's not a lot of bright spots after that that point and and you start to to plunge towards the bottom three yeah and there's there's a couple of things that they're, they're obviously they're trying to just bring in anything they can do to um to try and study the ship i mean Shearer's brought in peter beardsley's brought in as part of his backroom staff they bring back um the physio from keegan's um from keegan's reign paul ferris you know it <laughs> It's desperation at this point. Anything that they can do to try and whip up a bit of um, of morale or anything like that is we're trying to do that. But you know we're we're we are dead and buried from from the moment Kinnear goes into hospital. That's it. Hutton is is doesn't appear to be cut out for it, which is a shame. You know, it's a shame really because obviously the the following season he's put in charge of. Newcastle in the Championship, and he does extremely well. Um, and I think he was he, it was thought at the time we we would really struggle to get out with Houston in charge, but he did really well. But he wasn't up to it in the Premier League in that sort of situation. Um, I think it's more that it was just a lost cause more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, Houston's proved himself to be a really good manager. You know, he, he's kept Brighton in the league. You know, a few seasons running it was very unfortunate to be sat at Brighton. You know. He did a very good job um, using some some sort of younger players in the championship. We gave Andy Carroll his breakthrough. He, yeah, we we, we generally bought well. Um, we kept a core of that Premier League team. Um, into you know uh, Nolan, Barton, etc. But a lot of those big name players were moved on. You know, Owen gone, Viduka gone. Damien Duff was sold at the start of that uh, that season. We haven't, really, we haven't spoken about Damien Duff at all, which I think says all about his impact as a Newcastle player. Which is interesting because uh, he's another one of those statement buys. He is, yeah. But, I mean, he comes in... Um, he's brought in the season after Shearer retires, I think. Um, but, yeah, he, he has, again, has limited impact on that team. Oberferry Martins comes in to great fanfare from Inter Milan. Um, and again, I, I liked Oberferry Martins. He looked like a, on his day, he was, he was a brilliant player. And I, I, I still remember an absolutely brilliant goal he scored against Spurs um, for about 30 yards, having run sort of half the length of the field. But again, inconsistent. Um, there's too many, there's too many big names who don't fire that season and for the couple of seasons before. So I think at the end of it, we do the right thing and get rid of a lot of them. But um, yeah, this this season where Kinnear um, is in charge, there's there's a lot of big name players who don't do anything. Um, you know, Danny Guthrie was there, uh, Martin, Owen, Duff. Um, Alan Smith didn't really do much. Jonas Gutierrez was brought in and um, didn't really 
didn't really play anything like we, we expected him to. He, he turned, he stayed for a while and, and is remembered as a, as a very good player now. But we had Nicky Butt, who was terrible, absolutely terrible for us when he, after he signed um, from United. He ended up on loan at Birmingham for one season. Um, Viduka, again, at this stage, is he's old. Spent. He's a spent force in the Premier League. He he's, he's not gonna he's not gonna tear up any trees. So there's too many players. Um, one draining the, the club of money, but two just not performing. They're not whether it's a motivation thing, whether it's a case of they're just not good enough at this point. It's quite hard to tell. But they, yeah, they they, they weren't. In in that situation, they were not the people for a crisis. We're coming to the end of this season uh, now. When we start thinking about this run-in, and it's it's actually April Fool's Day that Shearer gets named their third. I mean, I, I I don't know if we call him a permanent manager, as you say, he's interim manager, but third manager that wasn't designated as a caretaker might be the easiest way to to lay it out. And he takes over with them. I want to say 18th in the league and looking like they're going to slide out, despite there being some pretty poor teams down at the bottom. And in the end, the Shearer experiment doesn't pay off at all. Newcastle don't look really that improved. They do manage to win one game, which temporarily drags them up to the dizzying heights of 17th. But they lose their last two after that 1-0 and never really look like making much of a fist of it. So I suppose the question is how much of that... Not, getting them into that position can't really be called Shearer's fault because if, if anything, you have to applaud him for answering the call when it was such a bad situation. But how much of those final games was Shearer actually not very good and how much of it was that the fixtures were against them and it was a no-hope situation to begin with? <laughs> right. I think if you appoint a man with no coaching experience and a man who's never really demonstrated any particular proclivity for um, for becoming a coach, let alone a, a manager of a of a big club. We, we're asking we're asking for it. I can understand if you decided that you needed to get in the club's biggest icon to manage the club for a couple of weeks. I can understand why you go for Shearer. Ironically, the man we needed was Sam Allardyce, but uh, that ship had sailed. Um, I can't blame Shearer for not being very good at managing because there was no, no one could have expected him to be any good at it. When, you know, if, if this is a club that he loves, it's a club that he spent most of his professional career at. Um, if the call comes to help in any way that you can, then you say yes. Now, you could argue that if he wanted to help, he should have said no. But he felt that there was that he had to try and do something. So I can't blame him for that. I don't think as soon as we as, as soon as we announced him as the as the manager, it was done. But it was done a long time before that as well. So I can't really say that Shearer had much of a role in paying for it in in getting to relegated. Yes, it was such a slim margin by which we were relegated. I think on the final day, we only had to get a better result than Hull or Sunderland to avoid relegation. And we couldn't do it. 
we lost to Villa um, uh, at Villa Park, and 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 that was that. Shearer, also, hasn't, Shearer hasn't managed since. I don't think no. He, I, I don't think he thinks he's he's cut out for it. it. It put him up for life, didn't it? I mean, and of course he walked straight into the match of the day job, and um, you know, and has been there ever since. Uh, but it's, I mean, I, I thought it was a dreadful move at the time. I just thought it was just, I mean, didn't Forrest try something really similar to Stuart Pearce? Um, yeah. And which was equally disastrous, you know, it's just because somebody's your most iconic player does not mean that they're cut out to be a football manager. And I think, you know, what we've seen, I mean, we've seen it with Frank Lampard recently, for goodness sake. Um, United what, did it with gigs with um, at the end of the Moy season, didn't they? Yeah. I suppose the yeah. only difference being that they were, they were, you know, solidly top five or something and we'll we'll get well i guess we'll see where how the social thing works out but it's it's um you know it's 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 one of those things that people like benitez and Mourinho and wenger and you know thomas tuckle and you know jürgen klopp you know people that have mediocre playing careers i think it's it's i think we've got a pretty large sample size now to say that the better coaches are not the better players <laughs> you know in the modern game at the very least you know I know Brian Clough was a an absolute well beater until he got injured but but you know like on the whole the better managers tend to not have had stellar footballing careers um I think it's so hard if you've been a top player to see players not doing things that you could do and I remember a very clearly a, a Glenn Hoddle anecdote where he watched David Beckham uh, try and do something he'd asked him to do and then Hoddle stood, you know, stepped up and did it first time and said there you go and it basically ruined his relationship with David Beckham <laughs> so it's that sort of like but it's that sort of thing though isn't it you know I can imagine if you're um, you know if you're Zidane uh, you know and everything's going wrong at Madrid at the moment and you're just thinking oh my god why can't you just be like I was Um Whereas if you're someone, you know, someone like Wenger that played in the lower leagues in France, it's like you've got to, you got to think, you got to think about it, haven't you? You got to actually sort of plan that out. How are you going to play? Um, and it was very, very clear that Shearer had no idea how he went to set the team up. I think the hardest thing to defend Shearer for, because there's lots you can say kind of mitigates these things. The hardest thing you can send them for is that they didn't really look like staying up at all and in fact there was only two of the eight games that he managed them for that they scored in which is actually quite a damning thing when you need to win games i mean we're um, doing things like we're sticking michael owen in midfield and you know it, it there was and, and the other thing is is that the players didn't think shearer had a clue what he was doing well it looks like he didn't to be honest with you well and and but, but that's the thing there was but I think the the other issue was that there was no kind of when you I think when you sell the players that you sold from Newcastle over those previous couple of years, there's no leadership anywhere. And when I suppose when your biggest leader your is is Joey Barton, then you you, you run into some trouble. And he's not the kind of player who's going to say. Get to say to everybody to get together and, and band together and say, right, we need to get ourselves out of this. The manager's not, you know, he's 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 going to do his best. Let's try and do our best for him. He didn't agree with Shearer's methods and called him out on it, and and that was it. Now maybe he thought that was the most professional thing to do. 
to, to call Shearer out and say, look, this is shit. We need some. We need something different. Um, but the truth is, Shearer didn't have anything else. And so the, the, the Newcastle's fate was sealed long before Shearer, um, long before Chris Hutton, I would say. You, you, you could argue that their fate was sealed from that meeting they had with Kevin Keegan at the end of August. And one of the most interesting moments that seals their fate, as you mentioned him just a couple of moments ago, is the man that they needed was already in another job at this point at Blackburn. And during this run-in, Blackburn overtake Newcastle in the same period of the eight games where Newcastle pick up, I think, four or five points. Uh, Blackburn pick up about 10-11 and finish roughly the same sort of distance above Newcastle in the end. And that's following on from the disastrous Paul Ince experiment. So if Sam Allardyce had been still been in charge, he wouldn't have been able to pull Blackburn out of the mire. There's all these kind of sliding doors moments that go on as well. Yeah, I think that there's a certain amount of um, there's a certain amount of Schadenfreude at this time, isn't there? There's a lot of teams who, uh, or a lot of um, there's a lot of teams who um, have benefited from Newcastle's failure, and um, I, I, at this point, I don't think anybody wants to see us succeed the way that. Allardyce was treated, the way that Kevin Keegan was treated, um, the way that so many sort of big Newcastle players were treated. Nobody wanted to see Newcastle succeed. So when they're in a position to go down, everybody just piled on. And, yeah. and we deserved it. <laughs> that's, and that's what explains that final day uh, at Villa Park where there was a real um, celebratory feeling amongst everybody else and it led to the banners and and so on and part of that is just typical football mickey taking but a lot of it was that there was a feeling that some of it is newcastle fans have that kind of we are the best club in the country thing and that's just ripe to have the piss taken out of you whenever you can and then the other part of it is that newcastle hadn't added a lot to the premier league for a good few seasons and it was a little bit like when a team like Wigan or Hull outstays their welcome and that's a ludicrous position for someone the size of Newcastle United to be in but that's where they were and so I think in many ways had Ashley managed to sell up in 2011-12 having gone down and stripped all that away and come back and you know people actually quite liked them again when they came back up there was that weird odd feeling that that things could have been very different and yet i suppose the the saddest part of this story in many ways is not that they went down it's not that they were that bad because that happens to everybody it's that nothing substantive changed yeah i think i mean when we came back up a lot of the things that the, the cancer that had sort of torn through the club over the, the previous couple of seasons had basically been removed. You know, the, the year that Houghton spent in charge, uh, got rid of a, a huge number of players who were, you know, dead wood, not justifying their wage. We got rid of them all. Um, won, the, won the championship, um, came back at the first attempt, which is, is a, as, as you know, Pete, is a, is a, is a, a feat in itself. Yes, yeah. It's Especially when... As Newcastle, um, you were really everybody's biggest game. Uh, certainly the first time when 
you went down and there wasn't another Villa going down at the same sort of time. Mm. Um, everybody wanted to beat Newcastle. So the fact that they romped the division so comfortably really doesn't get the praise that it deserves. We come back and although Houston doesn't last long in that, that first season, Pardew comes in and, and makes a, a good start. So it, we look to be on sort of a decent path. And then, you know, a couple of years later, we're, we're back in the same position. Um, so I think the fact that we haven't learnt anything is the, is, is the most distressing thing about it. And, you know, this particular season with Steve Bruce in charge, there's... <laughs> The, the more reading I've done um, looking into this this episode, the more sort of similarities you see. Um, you know, Bruce is, is he's not doing well with the certainly with the local media. Um, we've um, we've performed poorly in cup competitions. We and it, it's only really the last couple of weeks where we've managed to arrest the slide. You'd think if if that had continued for more than another week or so you couldn't have imagined a Bruce surviving the um the rest of the month or b Newcastle surviving the rest of the season it's kind of we've re- picked up right now hasn't it <laughs> I was gonna say it's picked up a bit now hasn't it I think the last thing I was gonna say is, is whenever a big club um goes down and, they, and again you can throw Villa in here as well it's usually the result of a decade of a decade of of, um, of mismanagement. You know, it's very rare that a big club just goes into meltdown out of nowhere. And if you look mm. at Newcastle over that period of time, you could see all of the warning signs lining up. But there was always this sense of, you know, oh, it won't happen. It won't happen. But people forget Newcastle were crap for ages. Right when I was growing yeah. up, I don't, right, you know, when I was like eight or nine if someone says to me Newcastle be challenging for the title in seven years time I'd have called you I'd have called you mental I said to you that I said you're absolutely you know absolutely around the bend so you know no club has a right to um stay title challenges you have to you have to keep earning it um and and I think Newcastle stopped earning it they were coasting on 95 96 um and to a lesser extent on the Bobby Robson years for a long time and it caught up with them um and of course it doesn't help if the board um makes some nonsensical decisions as well but um it, it is just uh it's a cautionary tale really that that you know if you're going to be a team that's gonna build a reputation as people that are going to be there or thereabouts you have to keep earning it and you know I mean let's take a club like Leicester City you know they if if things went wrong for them they could go wrong pretty quickly, you know, um, as much as they look like they're in a really good position at the moment, you know, because won a title and, you know, Brenda Rogers got them challenging. That's not to say that's forever. You know, if something goes wrong for Rogers, he gets sacked. Next manager doesn't work. They start slipping, you know, before you know it, Leicester could be in the third division again. So you just have to kind of always be aware of, of how much things can go wrong very quickly in football. I mean, Newcastle aren't the first and they certainly won't be the last team to go through something similar. I mean, you know, two months ago, we thought Arsenal were doing it. So it's not something that is that is exclusive to Newcastle. But as you say, it's it. I, I think it's um, it's an attitude um, thing. You, you can't rest on your laurels. And, and increasingly over the years, there's been less and less time to... To, to, to rest on your laurels and not react to what's going on around you and 
for too long, Newcastle thought they were they were they were too big a club to go down, and then all of a sudden we we're a yo-yo club. I think ultimately um, that's the the thing, isn't it? Is it's the complacency sets in quite deep to the point where you get it not just at the board level sometimes it can be the managers as well and sometimes it can be the fan base this this complacency that you are a big club and that counts for something and then eventually you find yourself 18th with no players who can drag you out of a hole absolutely so maybe one day we'll learn yeah i think that's as good a, a point to leave it on now that we've discovered that really in all of our collective football lifetimes the Kevin Keegan and Bobby Robson eras actually look more like the exceptions than the rule when it comes to Newcastle. And they've been struggling for more than they've been succeeding, which is quite an eye opener. But um, unless there's any last thoughts that anyone wants to make, we'll probably leave this one here. Uh, It's been good fun in a way to relive some of these crazy times. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it has been for me. I, I, there's something about watching someone combust that spectacularly. Um, I will just want to say that when we finally get round to doing the 2015-16 Aston Villa team, I'll be taking annual leave. There's no way I want to go through it. <laughs> no way I want to go through that the way you just have. But um, next time uh, out, we've got that's to... not how it works. <laughs> Shame. Next time out, we're going back to something a little bit more like our normal fare. We're going to look at one of the most beloved sides of European football in the 1990s, the Champions League winning Borussia Dortmund side, uh, where I'm actually going to say some pretty good things about Paul Lambert, which is uh, the first time I've done that for a few years. So, uh, yeah, hopefully you'll join us then. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.